Diversity Deep Dive Podcast, Being a More Inclusion-Minded Leader. According to a Pew Research study, 45% of those surveyed viewed diverse perspectives and equality as top reasons to improve workplace diversity. A comprehensive diversity inclusion strategy helps businesses extend their reach and impact in the talent market, fuel innovation, and drive better business outcomes. Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by a member of my Ronside Equality Diversity and Inclusion, or Ready Crew, Floss Agri. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Nika White, a diversity and inclusion expert, author, and consultant. She is passionate about building better workplaces, communities, and society overall. She will share helpful insights to build a more inclusive leaders. Welcome, Nika. Thank you, Audra. I'm so glad to be here. I appreciate the invite that you and Floss have extended. We're so excited to speak with you today and learn more about the great work you're doing. So let's jump right into it, Nika. In your first book, The Intentional Inclusionist, you talk about the leadership mindset and how it's critical for organizations to, quote, stop treating the work of diversity and inclusion as a sole responsibility of the diversity officer, but rather the mandate of every person. In your consulting work, how has that message been received in organizations? And as a follow-up question, does it require a major shift in culture or is it something that can be achieved with consistent behavioral changes over time? Great question, Audra. And for me, it's been very important to position diversity and inclusion as a practice that's more of a leadership function. And because it allows people to understand that there's a growth capability to it, even if we aren't quite up to speed on how to become a most effective inclusion minded leader, it puts the responsibility on each individual person to grow in that capacity. And so I have found that many have viewed this message as very refreshing, and they like the fact that it focuses on accountability for all, because then it extends the responsibility to all rather than just the people that, again, carry the title of diversity officer, leader, manager, director, or even the HR professionals in the organization. And in terms of whether or not it requires a major shift in culture, I think that shift is amplification of treating inclusion as a leadership function and competency. And so if the culture is not already one that allows everyone in the organization to share in that responsibility, then it certainly does require a shift in mindset. And I think that it starts with leadership making sure that everyone in the organization sees this work as something that there's an expectation of everybody to share in. I love that, an expectation of everyone. I think one of the things when I think about expectation, it's something that should be part of your everyday experiences, right, Nika? Absolutely. It is part of our everyday leadership experience. And so regardless of the titles in which we have or the position which we hold or even what's included in our job description, if we are simply people that are looking to have a level of influence within an organization, then we need to make sure that we're growing in our inclusion mindedness. I love that. You mentioned that in order to be inclusive, it requires courage to be a change agent. Can you give us an example of a leader's behavior which demonstrates that they are being intentionally inclusive with a degree of moral courage? I love this question. And although I'm a big believer that this work of diversity and inclusion is not just about our moral compass or awakening our social consciousness around the fact that this is the right thing to do, equally important is also very much in alignment with what's right for the organization and how can it move the organization in a positive direction. However, both of those reasonings certainly require someone operating as an intentional inclusionist 
to demonstrate a high level of courage. The reason I say that is because this work takes courage because it simply requires people to see themselves and to deliver as true allies. And true allyship requires standing in solidarity. So it's not just by the voice alone, being an advocate and communicating your interest and desire to see an equitable environment, but it's also about what are the actions that you're taking to stand in solidarity to help ensure that that gets executed. And that's hard for some people because some of us are really reflective of what are the ramifications? What are the implications? What could be the thoughts of those who are a part of the organization that may not see this as critically important? What could be some of their perceptions as to whether or not this is and should be treated as important? Thanks, Dr. White. I have a question about the conscious inclusion training and some parts of that relative to bias. So you helped us develop this amazing training, the modules for Ronstadt, and included a deep dive into the various forms of biases. Can you tell us a little bit about how affinity bias or preferring those who are like us can actually sabotage inclusion efforts? I certainly can, Floss. And first, thank you to Ron Stodd for allowing me to be a part of the Conscious Inclusion Training. When we talk about affinity bias, we have to recognize that bias oftentimes is just seen as being a negative thing when we are against a particular group of people or maybe a particular person. But bias also can lead to missed opportunity from not being able to tap others that are just as deserving of the opportunity to grow and to thrive or to have have a seat at the table and to be in the room. And so we have to also make sure that we're cognizant of how the favor that bias can present can also be damaging. And so affinity bias, or as you mentioned, preferring those who are like us is something that is a habit for many of us because we gravitate to people who are like us. It's just a natural occurrence. And when we do so in and of itself, it may seem on the surface that there's nothing wrong with that. But again, it leads to the propensity whereby we may not step out of our box and to extend ourselves to others who may be just as deserving or even have something different from what we can offer to to add or contribute to that particular project assignment or whatever it is that's, again, for the purpose of trying to move the organization forward. So we have to make sure that we are tapping others that are worthy of the opportunity. Great. Thank you. Um, My next question is just around us being diversity practitioners. We all know that respect and, of course, leveraging the differences of others helps to improve inclusion. What are a few things that leaders can do aside from I know you mentioned ensuring that everyone understands that they have a role to play in this space due to intentionally create an inclusive team? First, Floss, I think there needs to be a culture of accountability around this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And accountability is best facilitated when the leaders of the organization are not only modeling that work, but also they are having expectations of other leaders in the organization to facilitate that work. And so first and foremost, it starts with accountability. I think that it also starts with those leaders being a voice behind diversity, equity, and inclusion, and not always just waiting for, again, the HR professionals or the individual that carries the title of diversity, equity, and inclusion to be the ones that are advocating for this work and speaking about it. You know, sometimes part of our role as DNI practitioners is to manage up, whereby we may have to say, you 
you know, to our leaders, this is the role I want you to play in this meeting. And I think that some of that certainly is necessary, but I think that leaders taking the initiative to ask, what role would you like for me to play? What voice and what can I add to make sure that we're moving the needle forward in this regard is is a huge leadership, evidence of leadership relevant to diversity and inclusion. I also like the idea of allyship being something that is part of a leader's role, and you can be an ally in many different ways, one of which is to mentor or coach individuals within the organization. You also could be a sponsor of one of the business resource groups or employee resource groups they refer to in different ways in organizations. But to pay also close attention to situational awareness, practice mindfulness, which is something I talk a good bit about in my book, The Intentional Inclusionist, because if you are mindful and you're practicing really good situational awareness, you have greater ability to notice when inclusion is being compromised, and then you can leverage and influence your leadership to help potentially change that outcome. But if we just go through the motions, then oftentimes we are oblivious to some of the things that could be occurring that could cause inclusion to be compromised. And then the last thing that I would say is leaders need to also take responsibility for growing and cultural competence. It's not about political correctness, but we do need to make sure that the onus is on us regarding how do we become more culturally competent. And there's several things that leaders can do to grow in their cultural competence, one of which is just, again, getting out of our box and making sure that we're extending ourselves to learn about other cultures and other backgrounds. Because oftentimes, a lot of the unconscious bias that we have is not intentional. It's unconscious, which is why it's dangerous. But if we grow in our ability to become more culturally competent, I think that we can minimize some of the bias biases that exist. Fantastic feedback. Thank you for that. Great insight. Removing bias from the recruitment process, of course, is something that we strive for when working with our clients. What are some of the things that you can recommend for recruiters for them to do to help shift the mindset of the hiring manager when presenting a diverse slate of candidates? Great question. And there's several tips that I would like to share at this time. First and foremost, I think it's important for recruiters to recognize that the work of filling positions by being able to tap a diverse applicant pool, it starts well in advance and not just at the point of need when you need to fill that position. We need to constantly be thinking about who are those individuals or those organizations that we need to have relationships with on an ongoing basis. So that way, when we do have a position that's available, we certainly have have access to a broad range of people with lots of different levels of diversity in which we could tap. Secondly, I'm a big fan of the Rooney Rule, and there's several different variations of it, and this is what the NFL has created. In fact, I have worked with a number of organizations helping them to establish a Rooney Rule type of policy. But the bottom line is that when we do wait until the time of need to fill positions, it puts us in a position to where we are less inclined to want to follow all of the steps and to facilitate the due diligence that leads to a diverse applicant pool because we're just rushing to get that spot filled. Most organizations operate quite lean, which means that when a spot goes unfilled, it's a sense of urgency. But I think that we need to place the responsibility on those recruiters and those hiring managers to make sure that they are identifying a pool of diverse candidates upon which to select from and to vet before that position can be filled. And so that's why I like the Rooney Rule. I'm also a big fan of team interviewing. I think that sometimes our bias can creep into the interviewing process unconsciously. But if we have a team of people, it sometimes can help minimize those bias becoming to the detriment of the 
decision-making process. And the last thing that I'll share, Floss, is I'm a big fan of banning the word fit from those hiring discussions. It's not that there's something in and of itself wrong with the word fit, but I think that what it does, if we can take that out of the conversation, is it forces the hiring managers to be much more intentional and to articulate what are the reasons from a, a qualifications perspective or skills perspective that causes you to lean towards one candidate over the other. Otherwise, sometimes when someone says this person is not a good fit, it can sometimes mean that they don't think and act like we feel like the majority mainstream in that organization. And the bottom line is that we're looking for people that are skilled and qualified to be able to get the job done and get the job done in the most effective way. And sometimes that certainly requires having different people that have different thinking styles, that have different perspectives and experiences to be able to bring to that environment. I love that, Nika, about the different experiences and perspectives. And definitely the Rooney Rule is something that a lot of our clients implement and having a diverse slate for the hiring manager to consider from. One of the things that I appreciate about our own diversity efforts is that we're continuously evolving. You know, we're continuously trying to find, you know, more CEOs and senior leaders are talking about an inclusive mindset. More of our employees, our talents, our partners are able to witness kind of our transformative journey. And, you know, what are the three ways you think that diversity practitioners can engage the C-suite to be more intentional with diversity and inclusion? I think first and foremost, we have to make sure that we have a process for tracking and measuring our efforts. And this is not just quantitative, but also qualitative. I think that sometimes leaders are pressed to only review the quantitative data. And this work takes time. And most of it sometimes can be relevant to process-driven goals that can lead to then some quantitative data that you can share out. But we have to make sure we are tracking and measuring and that on the front end, we are properly communicating what does success look like. And so I think that's the one thing. And when you track and measure, that's where you tend to find that you're getting greater level of interest and engagement from your senior leaders because they are results driven. They want to see results. The second thing is finding a way to make sure that this work is seen as strategic work and not just as activity. Activity has the propensity to be viewed as programs and initiatives. And there's nothing wrong in and of itself of offering programs and initiatives in support of diversity and inclusion. But oftentimes, those elements are seen as having start and end dates, whereas what we're trying to do is impact the entire system, impact the culture. So let's look at our policies, our procedures, our practices. And then allow that to lead us to impact. But there is a key difference between activity versus impact. And so when you're thinking about it from a strategic perspective, I think that we also need to help leaders to recognize that the conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion need to be embedded in the overall strategic conversations of the organization and not something that's separate off on its own. They certainly have to work in concert with each other. And, you know, as I mentioned before, when we talked about what are some examples that are evident of leadership's support of diversity and inclusion, we have to almost help them by managing up. You know, we can't assume that if people aren't supporting us the way that we want them to, that it's because they don't care or see the value in it. Oftentimes, it's simply that they don't know how. So I think that the way in which we can engage them is to provide a level of knowledge and understanding to where then their interest is peaked and their influence is being leveraged to help move the needle. And sometimes that requires us, again, just exposing them to information that perhaps they just haven't been exposed to before. I love that. That's phenomenal. 
You know, one area that I think that companies fall short in their diversity effort is accountability for outcomes. You know, at Ronstadt, we have an executive diversity council that helps to cascade that message and drive leader accountability. Our CEO chairs it, our CFO co-chairs it, and it helps to kind of embed that, you know, idea of conscious inclusion, you know, from the top down. What metrics would you say could best measure inclusion? I think that's one thing that when you talk about ROI and leaders wanting to see the investment they're making in DNI, you know, how would you, when you're talking about inclusion, how do you measure inclusion? How would you measure that? So, Audra, to go back to what I mentioned before, I think that in order to define success, we have to look both at qualitative metrics as well as quantitative. And so the first thing that I always encourage organizations to do is to get a baseline of where you currently are. And once you have that baseline and you have a sense of where in which you want to go, if you gather that data, either by surveys or other assessments, then you can, you know, do a year over year comparison or however frequent that you think may be necessary to see if you're moving the needle. I think that we have to also look at the makeup of the organization, particularly those that are in positions of mid to senior level. Sometimes it's much easier to get a diverse workforce as it relates to the entry level positions. But what are we doing from a process perspective that is driving greater decision making that helps to provide a balance of different demographics, particularly among those that are underrepresented? presented in the workplace for those mid-level and senior level positions. And oftentimes, one of the best ways to help get leaders through the organization engaged is to tie it to the performance, make it merit-based and based upon their very specific role and that they're doing to help move the needle forward. That sends a strong message that the organization is serious about the work of diversity and inclusion, and that tends to garner a lot of support from those who may be indifferent. It can push them to the side of, of affirmative in terms of their support for the work of diversity and inclusion. Thank you for that. A big part of inclusion, of course, is also ensuring that employees feel valued and and actively engaged in the overall company success, of course. Just based on some of your experience, what would you consider some of the employee incentives that companies can actually use to improve support around creating an inclusive culture? Great question. And I'm going to go back to something that I referenced before, but I think is critically important. But organizations should be very forward thinking and their approach to helping individuals in the organization to matriculate towards higher levels within the organization. And so a couple ways to do that is to offer a mentor program and to allow those employees to have someone that they can use as a sounding board or help them to navigate their way in the organization. And the same holds true for formal sponsors programs. You know, there is a difference, obviously, between a mentorship relationship and then a sponsorship. You know, sponsors are very specifically charged with helping individuals in the organization to get assigned to some of those highly visible projects or even those promotions. And so I think that that certainly is a show of leadership support that is of an incentive to the employee base. I think also providing learning and development for the entire organization And the reason that I clarify entire organization is because not only is learning and development an incentive for employees to be able to increase their professional development, but equally important, a lot of employees that are part of those underrepresented populations, they have greater confidence in the organization which they are part of if they feel that learning and development, specifically around inclusion, is something that's being offered across the board because there's a sense that if my manager or even the higher ups are now being exposed to this information, 
information that can help minimize bias and create greater inclusivity, then I have a better chance of being able to matriculate towards higher roles. And then I think even awards and recognition for those individuals in the organization that are putting forth an effort to take upon themselves the responsibility of helping to foster greater inclusion, then let's award that. Let's recognize those individuals and reinforce that. And perhaps it's also going to create this domino effect where others are starting to share in that responsibility at a greater level as well. Great examples. One other thing I want to talk about is the lack of financial support for diversity and inclusion efforts that are that sometimes occur in organizations. There are still many HR and diversity leaders working on the business case for diversity in 2019. How can we actually get past sort of focusing on that business case to actually executing a plan or executing some of the things you talked about for diversity and inclusion? I think that organizational leaders and the DNI practitioners who are filling those roles, that we need to be a little smarter about how in which we set that up. So remember how I mentioned before that sometimes leaders don't know what they don't know? And so I think that the onus sometimes is on us as DNI practitioners to be very clear about how can you best support me? Here's what I need from a human capital and financial capital perspective in order to be able to reach these goals that's going to align with helping the organization to move forward in a positive direction. And so when you have those very thoughtful conversations and you're educating leaders and you're connecting it to an ROI, that's when I think we get better support for releasing whatever type of resources that are needed that's appropriate to reach those goals. And so again, sometimes we don't ask for what we really need and we expect for people to know what we need. And so I think oftentimes the onus is on us. But the other side of that is once those DNI practitioners and leaders are bringing forth that information, we need to trust their ability ability to and their wisdom and their experience to lead in that regard. It's interesting to me that I work with a lot of organizations who have diversity leaders in their company. And part of what they are seeking some counsel from me from is how do I get the support that's needed? How do how do I really be able to ensure that I'm able to be effective in this role and not just a position for the sake of saying that, yes, this organization cares about this work. And I always like to coach them through what are those conversations that need to be had? And it's not just about delivering the business case. That's key. But it's also about being very clear on the front end that this work takes time And that the investment may not produce results immediately, but it's more about staying to course. And then over time, you should be able to realize key results that I think are going to be very helpful. I love that, Nika, the coaching piece of it, because I think we all as diversity practitioners are in that position, you know, an occasion of you know, looking at how our work is valued as an organization, as a culture, as well as to the bottom line of the revenue and sales and innovation of the organization. So Nika, one of the things I really admire about you is your work you're doing to support small, diverse business owners. Can you share a few highlights of you and your husband's foundation, which supports your local community? Sure. And thank you for asking about this passion project. So my husband and I, a couple years ago, we established the Carlo and Nika White Foundation, and it focuses primarily on helping minority businesses to grow and thrive, compete more effectively in the marketplace to be able to create wealth so they can create jobs. And again, just contribute at a higher level to the community in general. You know, as entrepreneurs ourselves, we understand the struggle, we understand the barriers that exist. And we just feel that who much is given, much is required 
required. And so for us, this is one of those passion areas that we are totally committed to. And so every year through a grant process, we evaluate different minority businesses and we provide financial support to them as well as support from a coaching perspective or even just resource perspective, connecting them with viable tools and information that can help them again, just to grow their business to the next level. I love that, paying it forward. And you guys are doing a wonderful job with that. I see a lot of the the newsletters you send out on a quarterly basis. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. So one last question, Nika. I know beyond your career, you have another important job. You know, I think one of the most important jobs as yes. a mom. You know, what one thing do you want to be your legacy for your kids? That is such a great question. And there are multiple things. You know, we are, as entrepreneurs, again, as I mentioned before, we really truly believe in entrepreneurship. And so our kids have been exposed to that from day one. And we already can tell that they're very entrepreneurial minded. And so that's certainly a legacy that we want to continue to build upon with them. I think the notion of recognizing that some of the the benefits and the privileges that we have is not just so for our sole benefit, but it's also so that we can leverage that privilege to influence change for others as well. So it's about giving back and recognizing that no one gets to where they are without having people in their corners supporting them. Education is critically important to us, both formally and informally. And so we want to make sure that our kids have a legacy of this mindset of continuous learning and expanding their minds. You know, when we don't, in our home, we don't award our kids for, you know, things like doing certain chores, we kind of feel like that's a, you need to do that as part of just, you know, being in the home and, you know, growing as an adult. But we do award them for reading books and, you know, engaging in experiences that are educational and providing a level of personal development for them. And so those are the things that are really important to us. Awesome. Love that. I definitely, you know, understand about the education piece. That's something I've tried to instill in my own children from the time they were, you know, in preschool to current. So they love to read. And I think that's because we really encourage that from early age. So thank you for doing that. So thank you so much, Dr. White. This has been such a phenomenal gift. We so appreciate your wonderful insights. And Floss and I were both nodding the entire time through this podcast because we're so excited to connect with you. Really want to give a big thank you also to our listeners. We really appreciate you and your support. We certainly know that you have a lot of different podcasts to choose from, but we thank you for your support of the Diversity Deep Dive podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. White. We so appreciate your time today. Is there anything else you want to add that we didn't cover in our podcast today? I have really enjoyed our conversations today. In terms of what to add, I do want to share, Audra, because you are participating in this, so I think it's very appropriate to share that on October the 8th in Greenville, South Carolina, at the Greenville Convention Center, the Diversity and Inclusion Summit, Beyond the Surface is the theme for this year, is going to take place. This is an event that the Greenville Chamber does, one of my clients, and it's a full-day experience where we have voices of authority that are going to be speaking on a variety of topics relevant to diversity and inclusion, including an opening keynote, a luncheon keynote, a closing keynote, and then several different longer format breakout sessions in between, of which you're going to be facilitating one session. And I think it's on AI and the role that it's playing in terms of women in the workplace. And so very much look forward to you sharing with us. I think it's such an important topic that many in the audience will find great deal of value learning about. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you again for the invite to speak. And thank you, Floss Agri, from my Ready Crew, for being here today. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to spend time with Nika today. 
Real diversity happens when everyone is actively engaged and working together for positive change. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the Diversity Deep Dive podcast. Thank you again to our listeners. Until next time, go out and make a positive difference in your organization or community. 